0: On March 6, 1976, the UFOs didn't land in North Hudson Park in northern New Jersey. They had before, but today just wasn't that day. In January, a number of eyewitnesses claimed that a UFO descended over the park landed for a short period of time before rising up and disappearing in the night sky. The weirdness would only continue in the city of North Bergen, and that weirdness caught the attention of UFO skeptic James W. Mosley. Mosley's interest in UFOs began in 1948, with the death of Captain Thomas Mantell while in pursuit of a UFO. He would go on to interview a number of UFO experts and witnesses, and published various UFO newsletters, including Saucer News, whom he sold to Gray Barker in 1968, and the aptly titled Saucer Smear. Mosley was, in many ways, the Loki of the UFO community. UFO journalist Antonio Huneus characterized him best upon his death in 2012, saying, Jim Mosley was a unique personality that will never be replaced. He played the role of the Joker, Making a permanent social commentary about the state of ufology in America. He was an equal opportunity cynic, as the debunkers and skeptics were certainly not immune from his barbs. But underneath it all, he was a good guy. He was also truly fascinated and baffled by the inside core of unexplained UFO incidents. His iconoclast style will certainly be missed. In early 1976, Mosley went looking for eyewitnesses to the UFO landing. He interviewed a number of people at the nearby Stonehenge apartment building, many of them employees, that claimed a UFO landed in North Hudson Park in January. The 167 acres now known as the James J. Braddock, North Hudson Park boasts over 45 athletic facilities, including 21 tennis courts, three soccer fields, six volleyball courts, and a 16-acre lake known as the Woodcliff Lake. Today, a memorial statue of boxing great James J. Braddock looks upon the site where the UFO landed in 1976. Mosley learned from Stonehenge doorman Teofleo Rodriguez that on three separate nights, a strange figure was seen walking in the park. This five-foot-tall individual wore a lighted helmet on its head similar to that of a miner, and walked robotically in a grid-like pattern, constantly bending over to pick things up. Occasionally, the figure would cast its headlamp to the sky, as if to signal something from high above. The UFO activity around the park was beginning to make news, and drew the attention of Chicago radio personality Warren Freiberg, along with his wife and transmedium Libby Collins, This odd couple famously had domestic disputes that played out on their radio shows. At one point, the left-leaning Libby famously claimed that she was going to take one of Warren's guns and have it chopped into little pieces. Warren Freiberg was later fired from his radio job in 1985 for squirting liquid dish soap in the eyes of Boston radio host Jerry Williams. In 1976, the couple planned to contact the extraterrestrials that had landed in North Hudson Park to find out what was so attractive about the park and why they kept landing there. Warren and Libby got in touch with famed UFO researcher Timothy Green Beckley and arranged a small gathering at the landing site. It was Beckley who contacted Jim Mosley, looking for a place nearby to hold a press conference. Mosley agreed and it was held on the evening of March 6th. Plans were made to hold the seance at midnight on the 6th, but it wasn't long before the press caught wind of it. A press release that was just a little too specific announced the exact time and location of the event, and one local paper picked up on it, running the headline, "'Saucer Hunters to be Ejected.'" Turns out that North Bergen had a curfew in place, But a quick phone call to the local police cleared all this up. The event drew a number of critics to the park, many of them proclaiming Frisbee in protest. When Warren and Libby arrived, they ordered their entourage to chant Alpha Omega over and over as they gathered around them in a circle. The crowd turned mob closed in on the participants quickly. But they managed to slip away after a man dressed head-to-toe in tinfoil, carrying a flare, distracted the crowd. Most of the group sought safety in the nearby Stonehenge apartment building, but unfortunately, the dumbass Freiburgs sought refuge in their car. When the crowd had lost interest in the tinfoiled man, they descended upon the vehicle. The angry mob rocked the vehicle back and forth, but somehow they were able to escape and drive away, and showed up at the Stonehenge a short while later, where the small group conducted a seance on the roof. In the cold March air, among the stars, Libby contacted an alien named Calderon, who belonged to a species called the Grappolence. They encouraged the people of Earth to save their planet, and vowed to return on July 4th of that year. The grapplins never did return, but the residents of North and New Jersey kept reporting their UFO sightings anyway. 1976 was not the first time a UFO landing took place in North Hudson Park. A year earlier, a dramatic landing took place in the exact same spot. It was seen by an unlikely witness driving home from a long day of work. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is Episode 4 of the Our Strange Skies podcast. It was an accident. George Obarski wasn't supposed to tell anybody about this, but on this particular day, it was bugging him. It made the man restless, and he muttered to himself, You never know what'll come out of the sky. It was almost inaudible, but one of Mr. Obarski's customers picked up on it. Obarski was the co-owner of a liquor store with his partner, Bill Burns, And together, the two had successfully run their store in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan for more than 30 years. One of his regular customers was Bun Hopkins, a noted painter and sculptor. Hopkins made waves in the modern art scene with paintings and sculptures of huge, abstract geometric forms in the 1950s and 60s, and would continue to for most of his life. His fascination with UFOs began in 1964, after an encounter on the road to Provincetown, Massachusetts. Hopkins quickly established himself as a believer in the nuts and bolts idea of the phenomenon, and his belief was maintained by the sheer number of reports alone. In the ensuing decades, he would collect stories of people who had encountered UFOs and who had been brought on board them, mostly against their will. His first few cases were collected and published in Missing Time, a book that detailed eight stories of alien abduction and served as a profile of sorts for the abduction phenomenon. Hopkins noted how upset Obarsky was that night and asked him about his troubles. The evening rush made it difficult, but Bud soon returned with a tape recorder, interviewing Obarsky as he made change for customers. In mid-January 1975, George Obarsky had closed up the store at midnight like he did most nights, working the night shift from 6 to close. He would lock the store, work on the books, restock the shelves, and walk the store's security system, a German shepherd named Cognac. Obarsky was a resident of North Bergen, a small township in northern New Jersey, From the west side of Manhattan, you can look across the Hudson River and see North Bergen. And from West 89th Street, on the Palisades, a strange building stands taller than all the rest. What makes it unique is its round construction. The Stonehenge was built in 1967 during a high rise building spree in New York and New Jersey. The 34 story building houses 356 apartments, an indoor pool, and an exercise room. A recent renovation has added a lounge and billiard room. George's typical route home would take him through North Hudson Park, down Riverview Drive to avoid the traffic lights. He would typically stop in Fort Lee at an all-night diner before heading home to bed. This January night, George had his driver's side window rolled down. It was unusually warm for the time of year, hovering near 50 degrees at 2.30 in the morning. His car radio started to fill with static before it cut out completely. George turned the knob and grew frustrated, knowing how much radio repairs would cost. In the silence, there was a sound George didn't quite recognize. He would later compare it to the humming sound refrigerators make. It was then that a strange light came into view, traveling alongside the car. It flew parallel to a row of trees and quickly passed George's car, settling 10 feet above a part of a field that split Riverview Drive north and south, also known as the Flag Area. The craft was approximately 30 feet in diameter, flat on the bottom, whereas the top appeared more dome-like. The perimeter of the 8-foot-tall craft was lined with vertical windows, 1.5 feet wide. The only light he could see was inside the craft, through the windows. George slowed the car and looked on with curiosity and abject fear as a vertical door opened and a ladder came down. The UFO continued down as a group of at least nine figures wearing tight-fitting coveralls descended in an orderly and systematic fashion. Bud could see the fear in George's eyes as he recounted the details about these figures. In addition to tight-fitting coveralls, they all wore helmets, which obscured their faces, and each of them stood approximately three and a half feet tall. George moved closer, slowly creeping the car forward to about sixty feet away. The creatures paid him no mind. Each of them carried a small bag and shovel, which they used to dig a hole in the ground, scoop the contents into the bag, and then re-enter the ship, which took about four minutes in total. They came down this ladder thing, like kids coming down a fire escape, George said. Fast, no wasted motion. A thousand feet away, in full view of the landing site, is the Stonehenge apartment complex. The craft itself was just a few hundred feet away from the closest sidewalk. To give you an idea of how unusual this landing was, George skipped the trip to Fort Lee this night. He drove home and made himself some tea before crawling into bed with two aspirin and pulling the covers over his face. His mind raced with various thoughts. Was the world going to end? Was he going crazy? George was unsure of the world he lived in. All he knew was the fear under those covers. That something was very wrong. I was scared to death. Yeah. You know, I was, I was sweating. And I immediately made some tea. I turned on this radio took two aspirins. Hey, you know I was, I was scared. But man, this is I'm am wrong I've been held up in the store lots of times in 30 years by men with pistols and knives, and I've been plenty scared, George said into Bud's tape recorder, but nothing like this, ever. I was petrified. The 72-year-old teetotaler returned to the park the next morning, looking to dispel the reality of the situation. He only made it worse. Near where the UFO had landed, he found 15 holes about 6 inches deep. He put his hand in each of them to make sure that they were real, and his fear grew more. He tried to convince himself that the government was behind it. But why would the government need to send an unconventional craft to a park in New Jersey in the middle of the night to gather soil samples? And where would they find a group of people that were short, and better yet, all the same height? Hopkins was unsure of how to proceed. A series of phone calls led him to MUFON State Director Ted Blocker. Blocker had over 25 years of experience investigating UFO reports and a number of high-profile investigations under his belt, including the 1947 UFO flap and the 1955 Kelly Hopkinsville incident. Along with MUFON investigator Jerry Stower, The three men drove to North Hudson Park on November 25th, 1975. Near the landing site, they found 15 different spots that were missing grass, clear indications that they had been filled in. Weeks later, this would be confirmed by the park custodian. The investigators looked to the Stonehenge Apartments next. It was Bud Hopkins who noticed how close it was to the landing site. They confirmed with a doorman named Eddie that there would have been a doorman on duty that night. The employee had moved on to another job in Jersey City, but they were able to learn his name from a strange report he had filed in January. The man's name was Bill Pawlowski, and while on duty that January night, a plate glass window had mysteriously shattered with no known cause. It took investigators a couple of weeks to track Pawlowski down, but he was able to add more detail to the incident involving the window. At around 2.30 that morning, Pawlowski looked into the park at a series of bright lights that were shining at the Stonehenge. At first, he thought they were automobile lights from multiple vehicles lined up. It was then that he noticed the lights appeared to be hovering about 10 feet off the ground. Pawlowski walked to the window to get a better view and decided to phone a tenant to get another set of eyes on the light. Just as he started to speak, a high-pitched vibrational sound pierced his ears and cracked the glass of the main entrance door. The crack started at the bottom of the window. Pawlowski crouched down to look at the damage, but when he looked up again, the craft was gone. He immediately phoned the police, and upon investigation determined that the crack was made by some type of percussive force. The next morning he told his story to Police Lieutenant Aldel Guadillo, who was skeptical, but did confirm to investigators that he had heard the story from Palowski. The trio of investigators brought him out to the site where he was able to recall another startling detail. When daylight came, he noticed that one of the trunks of a nearby tree was now damaged. They were also able to pinpoint the actual day of the landing as January 12th through Pawlowski's testimony and weather records. Bill Palowski led Hopkins, Blocker, and Stower to another eyewitness who had seen a UFO in North Hudson Park six days earlier. On January 6th, Francisco Gonzalez, a 39-year-old Cuban immigrant and Stonehenge doorman was on duty. He was a part time employee who generally worked the Monday morning shift from 12 to 8 a.m. At 2 30, Gonzalez was looking out the front door when he noticed an object hovering over a playing field in North Hudson Park, approximately 1,000 feet away from the front entrance. Gonzalez decided to walk out to the driveway to get a better look, but when he opened the door, he was hit instantly with a heavy sound similar to the buzzing of a bee. The sound penetrated his inner ear and vibrated off his eardrum. The object was round and brightly illuminated from the bottom. It had a number of windows that ran around the entire length of the object, separated by short sections of frame. He could see eight of them from his vantage point in the driveway, each of them emitting a yellowish light. Gonzalez observed the craft for a number of minutes before it slowly ascended straight up and disappeared. Gonzalez's story was confirmed by the building's superintendent, Omari Perez, whom he told one week later. One of the most harrowing UFO accounts came from the Wamsleys. A family of five who noticed a strange object a few hours before George Obarsky's sighting, on March 25, 1976, Jerry Stower was giving a talk on UFOs to the Robert Fulton School PTA in North Bergen. After he concluded his presentation, he was approached by a 12-year-old boy named Robert Wamsley. Wamsley made an impression on the investigator as he told Stower of a UFO incident witnessed by his entire family. The Wamsleys lived at 67th Street and Boulevard East, in West New York at the time of the sighting. On January 11, 1975, at 9.30 p.m., young Robert Wamsley looked out the window to see a strange object hovering three stories in the air. He called his family to the window, and all of them gathered round and watched the object from their living room window. The object Robert described was eerily similar to the one seen by George Obarsky, Bill Palowski and Francisco Gonzalez. The craft flew low enough that a dome could be seen on the top, and a series of windows that ran along the rounded exterior. It coasted away slowly. The Wamsley family couldn't let it out of their sight. Most of them hit the streets into the cool night air, just as Bob Newhart appeared on the screen. The Wamsleys were all in their pajamas. Mrs. Alice Wamsley ran out of the door in just her robe. There were no shoes on her feet, and she was grateful for the warmer-than-average temperatures that night. Her husband and children ran across Boulevard East in pursuit toward the river, where it was last seen heading for North Hudson Park. North Bergen would see additional UFO sightings throughout the years following the Stonehenge incidents. On July 6, 1986, Wall Street investor Ron Lee was visiting a friend, artist Nanetta Nappi. Nappy was a resident of the Stonehenge, and the pair had moved out to the balcony to watch the sunset. Ron was the first to notice a strange oval shape hovering over the Hudson River. The two looked on struggling to figure out just what they were looking at. The large object had three sets of twin lights on the bottom. It silently floated above the water, and after ten minutes, began slowly gliding away before it picked up speed and shot straight into the sky. In March, two years later, on St. Patrick's Day, radio DJ Dave D'Elia was driving home when he witnessed an object moving swiftly over North Hudson Park. The diamond-shaped object had white and green lights on it, and Delia followed its path for a number of miles down the parkway. In 1993, English teacher Ann Karlovich, a skeptic of the George Obarsky sighting, had one of her own. Karlovich was, like nearly everyone in this story, driving home when she saw an elliptical-shaped object shining a light toward her. When she turned the car around to get a better look the elliptical shape was nowhere to be seen. At home, her son-in-law, architect Joe Bass, started talking about a strange object he had seen over Boulevard East, the same elliptical object Ann Karlovich had seen. There's one other fact that I left out of the George Robarski account that may or may not be significant. George recalled leaving his shop no later than 2.30 a.m., The drive home took him 20 blocks to the Lincoln Tunnel, onto Boulevard East, through North Hudson Park. This trip should have taken him no more than 20 minutes, when you factor in the traffic at that hour. George claimed that the encounter lasted no more than 4 minutes, and from North Hudson Park, it's only a 5 minute drive to his apartment. That means George Obarski should have been home no later than 3.05am, and yet, It was closer to four before George walked through his front door. Bud Hopkins tried to convince George to undergo hypnosis, but he declined. Part of him was still scared by the encounter, and the other part of him was scared to lose himself to hypnosis. He had a very down-to-earth approach to life, but George felt like there was something more to his experience. During a few conversations... He told Bud that deep down, he feels like these beings talked to him somehow. George Obarsky never explored the incident further. He was a practical man who was plucked from time, who experienced the unbelievable. He lived a life as honorably and truthfully as he could until his death in 1990. "'You know, Bud,' George said, "'I'm not a religious man. My wife was religious.' But I'm getting on, and I figure I haven't got a lot of time left, so I think about it. I figure if there is a god, and I face him sometime, I'll just say, Lord, you didn't give me all the brains in the world, or all the advantages. But I did the best I could with what you gave me, and I figure he'll have to accept that. And if he does, I'm going to say, Okay, Lord, here's one I want to ask you. Who were those little guys I saw in the park that night? Where are they from? Are you their god, too, or what? This episode was written and recorded by me, with research from OSIC member Annie. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to reach out to us, or are interested in merch or joining our Patreon, we have a one-stop shop for you now. Head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com, where you can find our social media links at the bottom of the main page, links to our T Public Shop and Patreon page, as well as a brand new blog. And while you're at it, check out the first post. It's called, Don't Go to the Greys for Your Gift Wrapping Needs. It's a, kind of a funny essay about the mistakes that greys make during the occasional abduction. Special thanks to the great Desdemona for designing our website. She did a phenomenal job, so please go over and visit OurStrangeSkies.com and check it out. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Our new logo and art design is by The Great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies or over North Hudson Park. In Gray We Trust.